Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 188th episode, our returning guest is Dr. Elizabeth Yuko. You first heard Dr. Elizabeth Yuko on episodes 54, 81, and 161 of the podcast. Dr. Elizabeth Yuko is a bioethicist and writer, as well as an adjunct professor of ethics at Fordham University. She has written for print and online publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, CNN, Fodor's, Lifehacker, Reader's Digest, and Playboy. And now onto the show. I looked and we started uh, talking last time in March, early March, which was right at the beginning of the pandemic. I I had you on because I had just so many questions about this new thing I, I didn't know about. And uh, obviously a lot has happened since then. But um, it sounds like uh, from reading your uh, article here, especially about uh, being a long hauler, uh, you've had quite an experience since then. And I'm, I'm very sorry, sorry for that because it sounds awful. Thanks. Yeah, I started covering COVID for Rolling Stone in February, I believe. And then, yeah, just I was looking at the last time we spoke and it was like mid-March. And I was going to listen to it, but then I was afraid of, I mean, clearly no one knew what was going on. But like, what did I even say at that point? I probably made some terrible, inappropriate joke. And then two weeks later, I end up with COVID myself. So, yeah, I got it. My first symptoms were on April 2nd. Mm. I I live in Queens, which, you know, at the time was the epicenter of the epicenter. There was one particular hospital, uh, Elmhurst Hospital, that was shown on the national news basically every day. People dying in the hallways, um, the refrigerated work trucks parked outside. And so that naturally, that's my my local hospital. so when I got sick, I, well, first of all, was not able to be tested because I was under 65. And at that point, even if you had all the symptoms, you couldn't get a test in New York, at least. Um, and yeah, the doctors I had, thank God for telehealth. That has completely saved me during this moment. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> so through that, having uh, spoken to a few doctors, they basically said, unless you genuinely can't breathe unassisted and would have to call 911 anyway, stay put. Hmm. So, cause, and I was at the point where I had pretty extreme shortness of breath and I mean, I never turned blue that I recall. Um, but you know, I constantly thought I was having a heart attack, you know, stuff like that, where I'm like, any other time I would be in the ER, but I am here by myself. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was a whole thing. And then, yeah, I had my acute period is about three and a half weeks. And then that's when the shortness of breath and all that went away. But then a lot of my symptoms just never went away. Uh, the extreme fatigue, muscle aches, uh, headaches, body aches, night sweats, um, a whole bunch of gastrointestinal issues, um, brain fog and some cognitive things that haven't been great. Um, and I just kept waiting for them to go away and they, they didn't. And so by June, that's when I started to get a little suspicious and was like, you know what? Something is not right here. I am just not getting better. Mm. And, um, that's when I started interviewing and, and asking doctors about this because, you know, at that point I was writing still pretty frequently um, and still am for Rolling Stone about COVID. And so I was regularly interviewing, you know, top doctors about this and be like, hey, guess what? Off the record, <laughs> I mm-hmm. the first week of April, what's happening to me? So, um, you know, I, I, they were like, oh, yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of you. Uh, and then, and I've just been, uh, a hermit. It's bizarre. I haven't been on the subway or bus or into Manhattan since March 7th. Mm. <laughs> so, um, I'm cautious to a fault. Uh, if, I, yeah, was the first, well, the first time I got it, we weren't wearing masks yet. So that was, I could have gotten in the elevator. Well, 
you know, I I think I may have even asked. I I also did not go back and listen, but I, I have a feeling I asked you at some point about masks, and I don't remember what you said, but I remember nobody knew what the right answer was at that point because. I felt like there was such mixed messages because, like, the initial thing I heard was like, save it for uh, the people, the hot, the frontline workers, and then it was like, no, now everybody wear them, and then it's, it was just, it, it was just kind of like back and forth a little bit at the beginning. So I don't think anybody knew at that point for sure. I mean, I was still going at the beginning. I was like going into supermarkets without it on because it wasn't required yet. Um, I'm just trying to remember those, those days. It's so like second nature to me now to put on a mask anytime I go indoors, but yeah. It was, I want to say, you know, the mayor and governor started talking about, you know, we had to wear a mask. I want to say it was like mid April in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, so it would, I know I was definitely well within and nobody was wearing masks, uh, phase when I first got sick. Mm. So, um, but I was definitely wearing a mask <laughs> a few weeks ago when I contracted COVID for a second time. Okay. Wow. Okay. So this is something I was I, I was very concerned about when I heard first reports of this. So so you 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 went from I guess from your first bout you you tested positive and then eventually you tested negative. I never actually tested positive the first time because okay. they, you know, I, I, because I was under 65, they wouldn't uh, okay. let me t- uh, take a test. Huh. So unfortunately, almost all long haulers who are, you know, not senior citizens fall into that category. Very few of us have the legitimate test from the beginning, which hmm. is so frustrating because that's just another excuse for doctors not to take you seriously because you don't have this proof. Oh, wow. <laughs> But I, I would have, I would have gladly given you, you know, a nasal swab or blood or whatever you wanted, but like, we were not permitted to get that. Mm. Uh, but it was, I have seen a few different doctors and, you know, I interviewed a, a bunch of other ones and they kind of said, I absolutely had it. There was, you know, they had no doubt. Wow. So, yes, but anyways, but I tested negative twice between okay. first time sick and now. Right. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. I didn't know if you had some, like, low-level infection, but it sounds like it was two separate incidents. But uh, now the reason I was told that was not usually possible was the antibodies would build up after the first infection and therefore give you a – this is what the herd immunity idea is based on, I think, right? Because – uh, once you have the antibodies in your system, then theoretically that serves the same function as a vaccination and therefore your body knows how to fight it off. But is, is there some, am I misunderstanding that at all or how did, how did this happen? <laughs> so there's a few things, I mean, because we're only really one year into COVID, there's still so much the doctors and, and researchers don't know. And I've basically defied science for COVID almost a year now myself, uh, because so many things are, are, you know, weird and don't make sense. Um, not everybody develops antibodies. Wow. Okay. Oh, so, yes. Uh, I've, I, I've been tested twice for antibodies, one in May, um, once in May, which was negative, And, um, I was still symptomatic at that point. And after I got the negative test and, you know, saw a different doctor, it was like, like, how did you not develop antibodies? Um, like, it just didn't make sense. And so um, we looked into it. And yeah, not everybody will develop them. Most people do, but it's not guaranteed. And also, they might be fading relatively quickly. There are a handful of studies out at this point that... Uh, have been tracing levels of antibodies in people who've recovered. And for some people, they last six weeks. For some people, they last four months. So I, <laughs> there's a few options. I could have never developed antibodies at all because I hmm. had another test for them in September. Although at that point, if I did develop them after the first time, there was a very good chance they would have disappeared by then anyway. 
So that's mm. one possibility. And then um, uh, uh, brain, your work, you're not working well. Oh, uh, uh, well, I was going to say, is there a chance that <laughs> any of these mutations that are going around could have something to do with it? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know for certain, but the week I got infected, the second or the two week period when I, you know, would have potentially been infected, the second time was right when the new UK variant was mm. first spreading around the city. So I right. may have two variants. Um, <laughs> that's not something to brag about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry that came across I'm like, um yeah so so that could have happened um and yeah so either i might not have developed antibodies at all or if i did they went away um which is unfortunately a possibility but you're not wrong about how herd herd immunity works mm-hmm. um but because this virus is just so unlike anything we've ever dealt with we're kind of just guessing for a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot of scary things about this because, uh, I don't, I don't, I haven't read, uh, all of, all of your articles quite yet, but I, uh, was wondering, you know, I heard this was breaking the, um, uh, barrier to the brain or the, um, blood brain barrier or whatever. This is like, that's why there's these neuro neurological effects. Um, am I, I'm, I'm totally garbling with the, whatever the science of that is, I'm sure. But you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> at all. We really thought that COVID was a respiratory virus right, right, right. as such, but as we learned more, we learned it was really an inflammatory virus and, uh, a vascular virus. So something, you know, that could really happen anywhere in your body and, uh, your brain is absolutely one of those places. And so uh, neurologists are definitely on the case and have been, um, you know, conducting studies or at least observing patients since the beginning. Um, and it's it's weird. And honestly, it's the thing I probably struggle with most aside from the fatigue and then also mm. getting COVID again. <laughs> so, mm. um, because... So my job is I'm, you know, a full-time journalist. And then last semester I taught a bioethics course um, back at Fordham University. And um, so, you know, I need my brain all day, every day. <laughs> you know, Seems not, important. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm reporting on the pandemic that I am also living through. Yeah. And then, so teaching it to, uh, you know, a group of master students. So oh, yeah. I, you know, I, and it was weird because there were, there were definitely times in class where it was like, guys, I just totally lost my train of thought. I don't even know what I was saying. Will someone please clue me in? And like, because it was COVID caused, it was, yeah, it's all been very weird. So for me, and I mm-hmm. think the most common neurological complaint is the brain fog. Um mm which is not like something I've experienced before. Um, and yeah, you just totally lose your train of thought. You won't, I'm sometimes not able to come up with words. Uh, my mother had a traumatic brain injury probably about six or seven years ago. And a lot of what I'm experiencing reminds me of what she went through, which is terrifying because she was hit in the head pretty hard. And, uh, and I interviewed a neurologist and he was like, oh, no, it's exactly what uh, what might be happening. And that's where they're looking to for potential therapies. So, mm. uh, well, uh, re- rest your brain for a moment. My, my daughter is having uh, a little bit of a meltdown right now. So I will be right back. <laughs> Excuse me. Just one second. <laughs> no problem. All right, I am back. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, a, a stuffed bird was was missing and then located, so everything's fine now. <laughs> Everything, everything's fine. Um, anyway, um, back back to the serious medical talk. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, that is one thing that these people, when when these politicians talk about, or these you know people that want to minimize this, they're always like, "What's the death rate?" Point 
one zero 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 one percent or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't include the everything else that continues to be wrong for people. Um, a lot of these doctors are saying the MRIs that they look at are like the lungs of like an 80 year old smoker. Uh, and it's like, we're talking about like a 20 year old and it's, and and I always, here's another thing that gets me is people are always like, well, I don't have any pre existing conditions. It's like, how do you know? Really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> you really, really sure about that? Are you sure you know everything about your health? <laughs> are you sure you can bet everything on not having some secret thing wrong with you that you don't know about? Um, I don't know. It's, and even if you don't have pre-existing conditions, there are examples of professional athletes that mm-hmm. have had and, and are now not able to, you know, do their sports job anymore. Right. Um, so, I mean, I am not in peak physical condition. I was not before the pandemic, but, um, but yeah, it does make you feel better to see, well, not feel better. I, not in like a schadenfreude type of way, but to see other people struggling with that too. Yeah. Um, because I was also told by, uh, one of the doctors that I was seeing, uh, in like September, October, that a lot of my problems were, uh, because I'm overweight mm. and they were just like, so this is from that. That's so everything I was dealing with was minimized to, uh, either my weight or my depression and anxiety. Well, uh, I don't know. You probably saw this video of the the black female doctor that was in the hospital and was not believed about her uh, symptoms. Uh, she was in the, the actually the hospital where our daughter was born here in uh, just north of Indianapolis. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? That yes. yeah. yeah. So there, I think there's a lot of that going on. Uh, they just, you know, they're not believing people when they tell them this is what's wrong with me. It's like, oh, you, you're, it's something else. It's got to be something else, you know. There's so um, much disbelief. It's, and I mean, everyone I'm sure has at least one family member or friend who just genuinely is not taking this seriously at all. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. And so I'm, I've mentioned in previous interviews, I'm originally from Ohio and like things are bad there now, but for a long time, I was the only person most of my family knew who had COVID and Hmm. they chalked it up to, I live in New York. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) it's your problem. Uh, You decided to live in the city, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But yeah, it's just, and I understand it's it's probably more denial than anything else that it's just really hard for us to accept that in 2020 and now 2021, we don't have some sort of magical cure for, you know, a virus like this. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. And nobody likes to think about that and, you know, the implications and what might happen if the next pandemic has a higher death rate than COVID. Um, oh yeah, oh, I think about that all the time. Look how poorly they've managed this, and think if it was even a little bit worse, <laughs> you know, it would just be pandemonium. Like it's already like rocking our society, society, and it's you know, it's it's obviously uh, you know we've got what four hundred thousand people dead, and who knows how many people with you know injuries that are gonna last the rest of their life. But man, imagine if it was like Ebola level. Uh, fatality rate that could be you know i don't know uh i do not have a great track record at the moment with catching pandemic diseases so i (laughs) really don't want to find out what happens uh you know down the line no no absolutely not but uh to maybe possibly a more hopeful uh note the you've been doing a lot of writing about the vaccines um that are coming online here um what do what do people need to know about them as as in terms of you know i i wonder yeah i know that this is not as prevalent as maybe you know the stories get blown out of proportion a little bit but and i think you wrote about this a little bit but the allergic reactions possibly to the vaccines um and i i think that's a real thing because if you have allergies to other similar type vaccines it's, there's a good chance that you might as well and uh, could you just speak on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
so there are allergic reactions to every vaccine out there. Um, unfortunately, that's part of the risk that we as a society and, and you know, medicine uh, agree to when we get vaccines is knowing that there is that small risk something could happen. Um, but the fact that the chances of that are so much smaller than the benefits of, you know, protecting yourself, protecting your family, et cetera. Um, so there's that. And then also people seem to be really, uh, concerned about the fact that you're supposed to wait 15 minutes in the pharmacy or doctor's office, you know, the waiting room or whatever, just so in case you had a reaction, there would be someone right there. But I have to do that every year when I get my flu shot. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, guys, that's not new. Are you just not? Mm. I guess that particular uh, section may not be getting their flu shot every year. Um, so I, I think a, part of what's been challenging about the vaccine in the beginning is that most people aren't usually paying attention, this much attention to a medical development or, you know, clinical trials or a vaccine. And so things that are completely normal in the research process, people have been panicking about as, you know, as we went along at one point, um, you know, when the Johnson and Johnson trial was temporarily suspended, you know, people just, okay, well, that one's not going to work. It's bad. Well, no, no, no. The fact that it was suspended shows that the process is working because, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're getting reactions to the vaccine and it's not because, you know, that was still back when there was, you know, Trump was saying, um, you know, vaccine by the election and mm-hmm. started having this other type of suspicion about it that, you know, because of the ties to him and he was you know, rushing things through, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it wouldn't be safe. But when Johnson Johnson, um, and I think AstraZeneca also uh, suspended their trials briefly, that is, I took that as a, as a good sign that, you know, they're following protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely suspicious about that. But now that that deadline has passed, I'm less suspicious, of course. But it did beat the previous record for a vaccine by several years, did it not? In terms of uh, from the beginning of the you know of of the you know the the virus to when they had a vaccine to distribute, I think I think that I heard that it was the fastest by several years. Like, but the previous record was like four years or three years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, I was you know I I think people may also be a little bit suspicious of how quickly it all came together. But uh, I also heard. Uh, I think it was, uh, gosh, I think, oh, it was, it was a This American Life uh, where they had interviewed a guy who uh, was working on the um, previous uh, incarnation of uh, an- another, uh, oh, it was it was either, I think, MERS, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he had, he had been working on a vaccine for that, and then he was able to take all the research because it was similar enough to to do to immediately start on work on this vaccine so um we i mean what what do you you've, you've talked to some of the people that developed these vaccines uh you know t- tell me about how they got this out so fast i'm kind of amazed at that so um it's i mean it's remarkable and yeah. <laughs> it's like i think i mean there's so much bad stuff happening with the pandemic that I don't think we really fully appreciated what we did. Well, not we, I didn't do anything. Um, You alone pretty much, right? (laughs) What we were, you know, scientists were able to accomplish. It was unbelievable. And so many different people I interviewed in uh, the, you know, medical treatment side of things, the medical research side of things just kept saying, we've never in the history of humankind done anything like this before. And uh, so, yeah, things, you, people might be suspicious, but yes, how it happened so quickly. First of all, you are not wrong. Um, the uh, COVID vaccine 
especially the mRNA um, uh, variety, which is what Pfizer and Moderna both are, um, build upon years or really probably decades of research. So they weren't developing this specific vaccine for this particular virus, but, um, you know, uh, I don't know, like a delivery mode system that was, you know, uh, created for a different vaccine is used now. So, you know, the way everything is, you know, it'll take multiple steps to get to one point where, that fits into the overall picture. Anyway, I'm not explaining that well, but you're right. There, just, This is building on previous research. So it's not like they went into the lab and mm-hmm. just, you know, had to start pouring test tubes into each other until something worked. Um, the other thing that happened, and this was something that I asked about a lot uh, as I was interviewing some of the researchers, was that all of the usual bureaucratic slowness (laughs) of the research process was sped up considerably. People were working in labs 24 hours a day, and it wasn't just that. The FDA, when it came time for them to not approve it, you know, at the end, but do just the approvals for the, you know, first phase of the clinical trial, People worked long days, seven days a week. They, you know, put everything else on the back burner to focus just on this. So, or, you know, the institutional research boards at the universities who conducted the trials, they might only meet three times a year. And, you know, if you get approval within three months, that's considered really good. But, you know, the committees met, they approved things within days. So I think the figure one of the researchers gave me is that things that usually took three to four months took around seven to eight days. Mm -hmm. So, and that's not even, that's not science. That's just, you know, getting ethics approval, getting approval from the FDA, that type of thing. So that was a huge, huge, uh, time saver. And then, um, the first time, you know, when, when, the beginning of the phase one trials, some of the researchers had the foresight to create uh, recruitment tools and consent forms and that type of stuff that could be used not only for the phase one trial of this, you know, this particular uh, vaccine, but for other coronavirus research projects in the future. So I think it was just a matter of people doing their jobs really well. And um, yeah, and, and things just happened very efficiently. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a very all hands on deck situation, it felt like. And um, they knew what they were doing and what they had to do. Uh, and obviously did not want to cut corners in any way. So they were able to go through the whole usual, you know, process of uh, safety procedures and everything, but just doing it at unbelievable speed. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was a different, and you mentioned, I think what it was MRNA, you said is the type of, uh, vaccine and that is different from other types of vaccines yes so when we think about vaccines usually just like broadly usually think about um when we get a uh a small very weakened dose of the virus so um you know for like the flu vaccine or something else like that but you're not receiving a dose of SARS-CoV-2 um with with this the um basically the mrna is injected into you it's like a little messenger and it uh has proteins that the body thinks are associated with the novel coronavirus and it um, triggers an immune response to those uh fake proteins little spikes uh and 
the mRNA part itself disappears, I want to say in one to two days, um, one of the, I don't know if it was Dr. Fauci, someone uh, described it like a Snapchat sort of thing. Like it goes in, hmm. does what it needs to do, and then it just disappears. So like, and that delivery method is very safe. And it's something that's been around since I think the 70s or 80s. Um, so like the concerns about you're going to get the virus because you're given, you know, an injection of it. Nope. Different type of vaccine. And then also, oh, because it was called mRNA, people hurt, you know, associated that with DNA and thought that the vaccine would change their DNA, which it also does not. Mm. Yeah. And, um, that is, you know, not uncommon for people to feel the effects of a mild symptoms of the virus afterwards, because that is the body responding to the, the vaccine. And I think people sometimes think, well, I got my vaccine and I still got sick. <laughs> Good, this vaccine. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's happening with, with the COVID vaccine also. It's not the same situation, but... Um, you know, it's not, you're not getting the actual virus, but you're, you know, the point of the vaccine is to trigger an, the immune response right, right. to the to COVID. So mm -hmm. when people are getting side effects, you know, the ones that usually last 24 to 48 hours, that's kind of a, that's a good sign. That means your body, right. you know, <laughs> accepting it, doing what it's yeah. supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think the most people have to do is, you know, take some Tylenol, you know, to, and some people do take the day off uh, after their second dose, because that is supposedly for some people uh, rougher to deal with. Um, mm. But I, anyone I've spoken to who has gotten to that point of having two doses has basically said, like, mm -hmm. sure, I'm comfortable, but I don't want COVID. <laughs> like, there's not right. like, a comparison mm. of because I've also spoken to people who said, well, if a quarter of people are asymptomatic, then I might have a worse reaction to the vaccine than I would to the virus itself. Uh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, but, yeah. But these mutations, they can I, – I know that they said – at first they were like, well, we don't know if it makes the vaccines we have less effective – and then I started seeing, yeah, maybe a little bit. And now they're like, well, we can re retool it and get it yeah, covering the new mutation. So what? how does that figure into, you know, because I got I to gotta imagine the vaccine that we have is better than nothing, even if the mutation makes it a little less so. Or, I mean, I don't know if it's a little, but it's got to be a greater than zero amount that you get, even oh. if they're, you do encounter a mutation. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's got to be something to it, I would think. Well, I mean, yeah. what do you, what do you what do you know about that? Um, basically, what you described is is accurate, and um, yeah, there's still so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. And you know, when the vaccine was being developed in you know uh, April, <laughs> mm -hmm. we, we didn't know that this you know new UK strain or South African strain would be happening, and so they were working with strain that was spreading um but yeah even if it's not as effective i mean the efficacy rate is unbelievable for it, pfizer at least yeah wasn't it what's 95 percent right that's oh. that's un, isn't that unheard of for a vaccine like i've always heard like what's the regular flu vaccine like 30 to 40 percent or something it's it's super low in comparison it but this is like up it's 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 up there it is it's it's like mmr vaccine measles mm -hmm. rubella um levels of e efficacy uh yeah when that first interim report came out i like immediately contacted one of the researchers and i was like something's off something's off this right it cannot have or like i said the, the interim report it was uh they said around 90 91 uh percent and it's it just i mean they were obviously delighted, but so the the FDA's threshold for them to uh, you know, entertain the going through the approval process with the vaccine was fifty percent. 
Mm. So if the phase three clinical trials did not end with uh, 50% efficacy, the FDA would, wouldn't have looked at it. So that was really the goal people had going in was, you know, we, we really, really want to make this 50%. And then, you know, if you asked for best case scenario, they would, a few people were like, okay, well, 60% would be like best case scenario. If we got up to 70%, I would do cartwheels down the middle of the street. I, you know, like, (laughs) so far beyond our expectations and then so 90 was just uh, i still kind of can't believe it um Mm -hmm. and then that's another reason people are skeptical because they're like well how could this be more effective than the flu shot if we get right so it's and i and i get that that's healthy to have skepticism about medicine and science and well maybe not science but you know there's so much garbage wellness stuff out there that (laughs) for that reason i'm glad people are asking questions about Mm -hmm. things they're putting in their body um Mm. like this is not some instagram influencer situation it is (laughs) are you saying that the essential oils will not help (laughs) (laughs) i used them so faithfully and i got it again this peppermint i've been using it for months now I should be immune, right? This is yes, I've got to have some kind of immunity. <laughs> Go ahead, take your mask off, lick the grocery. Sure, cart. absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so wow. yeah, but anyway, so yeah, it's for like for that reason, I'm glad people are asking questions. Um, but yeah, it's also you know getting to be a little challenging because mm-hmm. the widespread hesitancy. Although at this point, we're running out of vaccines oh i know yeah so then because i you know i'm always thinking about this in terms of coverage and i i'm at some point i we're continuing to work on an article on hesitancy and different Mm -hmm. public messaging public health messaging strategies and then as i'm kind of absorbing this last wave of news i'm like wait that might be pushed because I, I mean, we'll get there eventually and we'll have to deal with vaccine hesitancy then. But right at this moment, mm-hmm. that's not our biggest concern because we don't have the vaccines to give to everybody who might be hesitant. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, here in Indiana, locally, I've been writing about it. Our, we were expecting the federal stockpile and then that didn't exist, uh, it turns out. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no more, no more extra doses were coming and they were going to roll it out. They started I, and every state has had to fend for itself uh, and make up its own rules. And, and here the rule was that first it was 80 and older and then it was 70 and older. Well, first it was, of course, healthcare workers and, and EMS and fire and police first responders. And then they moved it to 80 and over and then 70 and over and then they were going to do 60 and over, but then they found this out and they're like, well, we'll do 65 and older at a time TBD. And then they, uh, you know, this is so frustrating too. And I'm sure this is on your radar. Uh, it's right in your wheelhouse. But uh, Pfizer, d- d- there was, when this first rolled out like a month ago, uh, they, the people I was, the, you know, medical, uh, the people in the hospitals were saying, look, these Pfizer vaccines, they say they get five, but really you can get like six or seven if you play your cards right. And I'm like, oh, wow, we got extra doses. And now Pfizer's going back and they're like, oh, uh, we want to get paid for those extra doses and we're minusing it away from what we're going to be sending you in the future. Uh, and I just yeah, so like we can't <laughs> catch a break. <laughs> like I thought we were getting ahead of this and now it's like ah, we, we, we got the vaccine, but no, you don't. <laughs> It's, it's been, the rollout has been less than ideal, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, yes. um, yeah, I, exactly what you described is, <laughs> I went through the same roller coaster of emotions, like, <gasps> bonus vaccine! Yeah, I'm like, yeah, we're, we're getting, getting ahead of this. Yes, we can, more people, <laughs> exactly, call the people, they have a waiting list locally, where, where uh, you know, people that can't get, uh, you know, they'll call them, and they're like, we don't want to waste any, go, 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 and then it's like... <laughs> there's none extra <laughs> anymore and i don't know yeah it's and that's a question i've been asked multiple times is what's happening with that and why is everything so bad um and i wish i had a good answer but 
part of it definitely is that for years, I would say at least going back to George W. Bush's administration, um, there have just been cut after cut to public health budgets on mm. uh, state levels, local levels. I know we don't have like a national official legal public health department, but like CDC and NIH, you know, that type of thing. It's just been something that has been seen as superfluous. And if money had to come from somewhere, frequently it came from the, you know, the public health budget. If, you know, if you weren't taking away like music for children or, you know, something like <laughs> or, or twirling your mustache and thinking of something else you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, it's a coping mechanism at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, you know, and so the budget cuts got rid of personnel. It got rid of programs. It got rid of logistical uh, things that would make something like a national vaccine rollout during a pandemic possible. Mm -hmm. So just years and years of, of cut after cut after cut. And then, you know, things got a little better during Obama, but then next guy came in and <laughs> did his thing. Um, and now people, Republicans are getting like surprised that mm. this is happening. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you've been doing this for 20 years. Right. This budget. And when you were taking, like when a pandemic's not going on, I can see why people, you know, might want to use that money for more urgent matters, but like, come on, <laughs> it's <laughs> when you need it, you really need it. So right. that's part of it is that just so, so many of these apartments are understaffed, underfunded, and um, have just been overlooked for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, and the profit motive isn't going to support empty hospital beds during not a pandemic. You know what I mean? So if, if that's you know, like you said, if if the cuts got to come from somewhere, it's going to come from there. So, um, now I wanted to ask you though. I don't know if you've written about this yet, but you've, you, I think you've mentioned the main. There's there's four main ones. There's two that are out on market, and the AstraZeneca and the um, Johnson Johnson are TBD. But there are also, and I don't know how effective these are or how much we should trust these, but there's a Russian one I know about. There is a Chinese one uh that i've heard about what is there any others around the world that we should know about and what what kind of efficacy do they have or safety for that matter uh great question that i don't have a good answer to um mm. i would not recommend the russian one okay it's, uh unless it's a different one but they had very small phase three trials and they came out you know a few months ahead and I mean, not the whole thing got very space race, space race, <laughs> sort of. So, I mean, that's what happened. You know, they literally named their vaccine after Sputnik. So, right. kind of did this. You know, it 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 was an intentional sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so that one gives me pause. Uh, sure. Looking at the. Uh, well, I was supposed to say, looking at the data, uh, I don't think it's publicly available. So. Yeah, I don't think there is any data, I guess. That's my, part of my confusion. <laughs> so, yeah, because, you know, with Pfizer and Moderna, I can download, mm -hmm. or anyone can download uh, pretty extensive data from the clinical trials and look at things like uh, side effects, you know, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I, nobody can really even make that determination about the Russian one. Um, there are a few different... Uh, ones going on in China, but I don't really know enough about any of them. Um, yeah, the one I just would not be too keen mm -hmm. on is, is the Russian one. Yeah, I <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to take that one. I don't think, um, and I don't think Dr. Fauci would say you should either. So I don't think I'm uh, flying off the handle there, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, now, I, I know that you said that uh, I, I did want to ask you uh, one impeachment question, uh, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, because uh, you did write about uh, impeachment recently as well. Um, is there a possibility that there could be a secret ballot for, uh, as, you know, these are jurors in a trial, normal 
jury, as I understand it, doesn't usually have to say who voted which way unless they volunteer that information. Is that possible? Is it to have some Republicans vote? Well, everybody, uh, like, like instead of making your votes public, like on a roll call, is it possible to vote uh, guilty or not guilty as a senator? Could could we could there be a rule passed? Is that part? Is that a protocol that could be instituted? Are people talking about that? I don't know. Um, mm. From what I have read in the Constitution, it's pretty limited mm. because, you know, the founding fathers didn't foresee any of this happening. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, take your pick. Uh, but, uh, but the other side of that is there's also no provision saying it's not permitted. Hmm. So, so much of what we've been dealing with the past, especially the past three weeks is, (laughs) well, we don't have any precedent for this happening, but we also have no precedent saying we can't do this. How's it going to turn out? Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, that's not, yeah, that's not something I, I know. Okay. <laughs> it's it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an experience. Oh, I know. Well, and it's going to be after the fact. Now, um, so the, the vote to just disqualify him from running again, does that have to be, that's a separate vote, I understand, that could be taken and do they have to wait until after the trial to take, or they vote on the trial and then they can vote on that measure? Is uh, that would would that be the way that works? It would be first they would have to convict him. So you can't do that without a conviction. Yes. Okay. See, I thought maybe we could fall short of a conviction and still, but you're saying that you have to have both. I believe so. Yes. Wow! 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 Okay. That's the tricky part. You have to have the two. Man. Um. To convict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm disappointed in that answer. Sorry. <laughs> what am I telling you? <laughs> I feel like, oh, I'm crushing your knees. No, darn you, reality. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and there's, there's, it doesn't specify what the disqualifying from future office vote is, but it's mm-hmm. been a simple majority rather than the two thirds. But in you would the- still have to get the two thirds before you get the simple majority. Yeah. Well, why even have it? Never mind. It's fine. It's, you're not the one that makes the rules. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, it's Jefferson. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> mad, at, mad at him for other reasons. <laughs> oh, don't do bad things like slavery. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's, there's, there's so much, but, um, yeah. And uh, have you, did you watch Seinfeld? Oh yeah. Okay. So do you know the episode where Kramer sees the movie about the person in the coma and goes to see his lawyer, Ben Stein, <laughs> and they have all these scenarios of like Ben Stein's like, okay, you're in a coma, you can eat, but you, you know, have no brain function. And then Kramer and Elaine like respond like, Yank it like you're pulling a chain, or you know something like that, or like, nope, I want to stick around, or I want to get. That was what it was like when I was interviewing the common law professor from George Washington, and I was like, mm-hmm. okay, here's the situation. It is 11:25 p.m. Mm-hmm. On, <laughs> on the 20th. <laughs> Trump resigns. Mm-hmm. He's just sworn in, and then you know he's never officially removed from office because mm-hmm. you know. He resigned, you know, so I was asking this poor, poor guy, like, all of the different weird scenarios that could <laughs> happen. And like some of them, some of them are out there, but at this point, everything is out there. Everything's so. out there. <laughs> Absolutely. He's very patient with, with me. And, <laughs> and a lot of them we don't know. Like, well, that's a great question. We have no idea what would happen if, you know, that was the case. But right. um, the, uh, Dave, the, yeah, the inauguration, uh, I don't know who it was. Someone on either NBC or MSNBC was saying that the license plate for Joe Biden's, you know, the car he rides around in that says 46, they also had one made that said 47 in the event mm. that something like that did happen. Wow. Um, yeah. So, it, so, because I thought it was, you know, just 
my imagination running wild. But <laughs> no, I guess they had the same idea that that could that could happen. So wow. yeah. Huh. Well, and this is interesting too because it's taking place after his his term. Um. So yeah, the whole thing about removal from office is kind of a moot point, but. Yeah, it's just it's it's crazy, and I can't believe they're waiting so long. I know that they want to get other stuff done, but I honestly think they could pull it off in 30 minutes with commercials. You know, <laughs> just show the tape of him telling everybody to march down there, and and then show them doing what they did. And in case the, the prosecution rests, <laughs> I think uh, I don't know what else because it's like the other ones are like, well, obstruction, and we don't have a tape of the call, and you know, this person heard this, and I was disturbed, and it's like, well. But it's like people had cameras, <laughs> high definition. <laughs> like we saw it happen. Did you experience it? You check yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean he's provided us with really great and substantial <laughs> evidence against right. <laughs> Exactly. Oh yeah. yeah. And then all the like, uh, did you see the thing about how the all the parlor users uh, accidentally shared all their location data inside the Capitol after the? That was incredible. Bravo! I knew that all that posing for the gram inside the Capitol building was going to come back to haunt them. <laughs> like, as, as horrified as I was of that day, I'm like, all right, we're going to probably be able to find most of these people. <laughs> they probably tagged themselves in all their photos. I bet. It blew my mind. And like Thursday, so obviously, you know, the insurrection was a Wednesday. And Mm -hmm. then that the following day, that Thursday, I interviewed Saul Loeb, who is Yeah, I read that. um, That was really interesting. Yeah, and the photographer with the AFP, stuff got picked up by Getty. And these people were freely giving him their first and last names. Wow. Like You know, because when, uh, you know, even if it's just a, you know, photographer without the accompanying reporter, do they still have to get the names and stuff like that? I, I mm-hmm. clearly they must have known what they were doing. Right. Like that. Yeah. I mean, and Saul was obviously pretty surprised about that part, too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just incredible. But, um, well, I, uh, I've, I've kept I've kept you long enough. Uh, I. Uh, Thank you so much for for taking all the time uh, talking with me here. Uh, what have you been watching or listening to, or what do you anything to recommend to the people? <laughs> um, my listening to <laughs> has been uh, weird. Well, not weird. Uh, <laughs> basically, my writing music for the last few weeks of the Trump administration was Mozart's Requiem. Wow, which Serene. is pretty. Especially the DS Irae parts, which is, you know, two minutes of, of pure anger. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like a like a, you know, pretty background. No, it's like it's pretty intense. Mm. Um, and that's the thing that, yeah, I, I've been thinking of. And then just kind of background instrumental music by some of the. Uh, like session musicians from like 60s and 70s who, you know, put out different songs and stuff like that. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's re- yeah, no, that's that's smart because I feel like if I listen to the songs with too many lyrics when I'm writing it, it jumbles up the 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 word making part of my brain and the listening to the beat part of my brain and start start fighting with each other <laughs> just like they 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 like each other if they can play separately you know what i mean like <laughs> when they start having to like oh think of all the clever lyrics it's like oh, i can't compose words anymore help <laughs> yeah it's and then just a lot of normal quiet background classical music for writing cool. um yeah yeah, well, we've been doing a classical music uh, lessons with our son. We started homeschooling him uh, this last year, and there's a program that he does uh, with different composers, so that's been fun. Oh, wow. So, but cool. 
Well, um, I hope uh, you get some rest here, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. I'm sure I'll have a bunch more uh, <laughs> questions that nobody knows the answer to <laughs> to ask you. I, I feel like I, I, I ask things that no one could possibly know at this point in history, and then w when you listen to it six months, people will be screaming at me like, no, Rob, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully next time I will – not have had COVID two more times. Oh my gosh. I hope not. <laughs> I hope two is enough. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I hope I have it zero more times, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, great. Well, uh, yeah, I, uh, will definitely keep reading your stuff and, uh, yeah, I hope to have you again soon on the podcast and, uh, have a good, uh, start of your week here, I guess tomorrow. So, Thanks so much. You too. Cool. have a great night. Bye-bye. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. 
Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.